0: The term addiction often conjures up images of people struggling to kick bad habits with alcohol or drugs. But people can get addicted to all kinds of things.
1: Almost any behavior can become an addictive behavior, uh, even normative rewards such as uh, food, sex. Uh, these types of things, the relationship can be corrupted and can be made addictive. Good morning, I'm George Boracki, and this is Cityscape
0: on 90.7 FM and org. On this morning's show, we're taking a closer look at addiction, from people who literally can't get enough of video games, to a woman who says she's addicted to ventriloquism.
2: Sonny, when did it become an addiction for me? Let's see. Back track. Back track. It was a dark and stormy night. Actually, um... It's always been sort of an addiction for me. I've always sort of loved it, uh, you know, from day one.
0: Addiction on this morning cityscape. Glad you're with us. You or I might not see a problem with having a morning cup of coffee, but Brooklyn resident Scott Sager takes issue with it, when it comes to his teenage daughter at least. And he's been asking himself, is caffeine the new gateway
3: drug? I fear that my 16-year-old daughter is an addict. It's caffeine. From the omnipresent latte cup in her hand to the spent bottles of iced tea drinks I find in her book bags, the black devil has gotten its stimulating hooks into her. She denies it, saying, I can stop anytime. She ignores my pleas. It's not a problem. She rejects all reason. It doesn't affect me. I don't believe her. Last Sunday morning at 10.30, she stumbled into the kitchen, and the first words out of her mouth were, Is there coffee? She can barely make it to school on time, but she'll be at Starbucks before an early softball practice just to grab a grande to make it through the morning. I don't approve of her habit. In my mind, at her age, coffee is a gateway drug. It may not be so bad itself, but it could well lead to worse things. I fear that the lesson she'll learn is that if a cup of joe can make you feel better, why not try oxycodone or ecstasy or methamphetamines? After all, it's the same thing. Taking something to adjust your mood and energy to do better in sports, or on a test. Who cares whether it's in liquid or pill form? And from there, why not cocaine, heroin, anything to smooth out life's dips and bumps, to speed you up the hills and over the obstacles? I won't buy or brew her coffee. I won't participate in the procurement of her fix. But she's 16, and I'm not with her much anymore. She has her own money. How should I handle this? Have her followed? Require daily urine samples and dock her allowance if they come back positive for caffeine? Ground her? Aversion therapy? Send her to boot camp in a desert somewhere. Military school. Of course, I'm hampered by my own hypocrisy and cultural indifference. My wife and I have coffee every day, a few cups before the kids are even out of bed or the dog is walked. I certainly won't give it up. I depend on that morning pick-me-up to get me going, that after-lunch mug of java to help me through the afternoon lull. My habit hasn't led me to rehab. Also, there's no minimum age to purchase Ethiopian dark roast or Colombian breakfast blend. Can you imagine someone at Connecticut Muffin asking for ID? Can you picture Dunkin' Donuts or D'Amico's turning a young customer away if he or she asked for a cup with a muffin? I try to give my teenager the message, let your body do its job. No ibuprofen unless your fever is over 102. If you're tired, sleep more. This message often gets lost in her busy schedule. If she's up until one finishing homework and has an early dance rehearsal the next morning, her weary bod is an obstacle So why discourage her from that warm cup of energy from the corner cart? If her schoolwork is fine, if she's present for her activities, if she's not stumbling home on the weekends from late-night parties, then what's wrong with her doing the java jive? That's the dilemma. Nothing is wrong until it is, and then I'm too late. So I'm going to stand my ground with caffeine. I may not keep her from imbibing, but I will keep her thinking about the issues. What does it mean to use something to change your mood, to give you more energy, Why is one thing all right and another not? I hope it's enough. Scott Sager is a columnist for the Brooklyn Paper. It's a sure bet he's not
0: alone in having concern for a loved one who may be headed down a path toward addiction. Joining us now to get a better handle on the warning signs is Dr. Stephen Ross, the clinical director for New York University's Langone Center of Excellence on Addiction. Dr. Ross, good morning. Good morning. First of all, what is an addiction?
1: Addiction is a term that applies to a spectrum of different problems related to substances, drugs of abuse, or can even be behavioral addictions, uh, things like gambling, food, sex, uh, and can be understood more broadly. Uh, Addiction is defined as compulsive use of a drug or some behavior that causes negative consequences in one's life, uh, and the person uh, loses control over the relationship with the compound or the behavior, and is unable to stop or moderate their use, and ends up using, despite sometimes catastrophic negative consequences in their life, including loss of their families, jobs, where they only have a relationship with the substance in the more severe variants of the illness.
0: What's the difference between an addiction and a compulsion?
1: Well, an addiction has a has a more impulsive element to it, especially in the beginning. Addicted individuals are poor decision makers, and they look at things that have more immediate reward rather than delayed reward, and there's an element of excitement and sort of poor judgment uh, and impulsivity that is part of the illness. In the latter stages of the illness, it becomes more of a compulsive disorder, defined as repetitive behaviors despite not wanting to do them and despite negative consequences. So it, it has elements of both impulsivity and compulsivity.
0: What are the warning signs that someone might be on the verge of becoming an addict?
1: Well, it depends on the age and the setting. You know, addiction is really concentrated in the age range from 18 to 25. So during the adolescent period, there are risk factors uh, for adolescents and in that group of individuals, it's poor school performance, you know changes in behavior, changes in appearance, hanging out with a deviant social group, missing school, many other things that can be warning signs for parents if they're, uh, when their children are adolescent. In adults, it can be different. One of the last things to go in adults is work performance. So people can say, "Well, I'm functioning at work, I'm not addicted. It's usually um, friends, hobbies. Other pleasurable activities, family. That start to um, there starts to be problems that are seen there, uh, and then ultimately, work is the last thing to to eventually go. Where people, you know, have erratic behavior and are showing up late, or appear intoxicated, or have alcohol in their breath, or are hungover. But sometimes it can be very subtle, and people can function relatively well during the day. Come home at the end of the night, have a bottle or two of wine. Uh, and it can start to cause problems in their life, but they can go on that way for a period of time.
0: A lot of people jokingly say they're addicted to things like texting. Can people really be addicted to something like texting?
1: It is possible. You know, our brains respond to novelty and to sort of quick, rewarding kinds of things. So you see this in kids and the gaming industry. That those, the types of games and the electronic media are geared towards quick, immediate types of rewards, and you can see kids develop addictive-like behavior to video games. And with things, almost any behavior can become an addictive behavior, Uh, even normative rewards such as uh, food, sex, uh, these types of things, the relationship can be corrupted and can be made addictive. So, you know, texting and these kinds of activities Internet, etc., can produce addictive like behaviors very similar to other addictive behaviors, and they're starting to even be now uh, laboratory models and imaging models that suggest that the very same centers of the brain involved in let's say addiction to cocaine are active in these other kinds of um, newly described addictive behaviors
0: what 's the strangest addiction that you 've ever heard of
1: there are uh, emerging addictive type of behaviors and emerging drugs of abuse. And uh, I'm not sure if they're necessarily strange, but they are potentially serious. So there's a new form of synthetic marijuana or synthetic cannabinoids that are available in head shops and are not not yet illegal. One of the fastest growing addictions in this country is um, prescription opiates, and that has become a big problem. And, And another big problem has become food addiction. Those two problems are getting a lot of attention lately and are things that we're going to have to contend with.
0: Food addiction meaning that people are simply overeating?
1: Well, it's it's worse than that. You know, the makers of processed food in this country, they know how to make a very addictive product. They test it on individuals. They figure out the right concentration of fats and processed sugars. And they make it cheap. And good foods in this country are expensive and are out of reach for people that are poor. And so we have, you know, about a third of adults uh, or more in the United States are obese. About a quarter of children uh, or so are obese. And this is uh, creating a big problem for healthcare. We're going to see more and more of these individuals. The costs are going to go up related to their care. And so food, which is a normative reward, has been corrupted and made into a very addictive product a little bit like cocaine heroin other drugs that are plants that are by themselves not necessarily addictive but they can be made into highly addictive products
0: I don't want to target a specific brand but you're saying someone can be addicted to a type of cookie or a potato chip
1: yes yes I mean not necessarily a specific brand but you know something that has the right combination of certain fats and sugars is very rewarding, and our brains light up. And the reward areas of our brain light up more to certain kinds of food, and we end up gravitating towards those types of foods, and they end up being destructive to our bodies and our lives.
0: What's the most common type of treatment for addiction?
1: Well, it's interesting. The, the most sort of commonly used treatment in this country is not in a medical system, it's a 12 step uh, model, Alcoholics Anonymous. Etc. More people avail themselves to that treatment, which is free, than they do to treatments in medical centers. In fact, the treatment delivery system for substance abuse in America is very uh, poor. Only one in 10 people that have a substance abuse problem, either adults or adolescents, get treatment in a year, which is a very poor number. So, And the great irony is we have wonderful treatments for addiction. It's a very treatable disorder. We know how to treat it. We know the medications that work. We know the psychotherapies that work. There's a big evidence base for addiction treatment, and we've developed much of it in the United States. But we leave these treatments on the shelf collecting dust, and they're hardly utilized in delivery systems in the United States. Many hospitals don't even treat addicts in this country We're very far behind, uh, but we have the tools. We just need to implement them, and there are many good treatments that work.
0: Dr. Ross, you're a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was Dr. Stephen Ross, the clinical director for New York University's Langone Center of Excellence on Addiction. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM. It's WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boracchi. This morning, we're focusing our attention on addiction. Like a lot of New Yorkers, Scott Miles loves to run. He even blogs about it at irunnerblog.com. While researching for the show, I was drawn in by one of Scott's posts titled, Are You Addicted to Running? Scott, let me start off by asking you, how long have you been running?
4: started with my first training program for the 2008 New York City Marathon. Prior to that, I had been you know, an athlete had played sports in college and high school, and running was just part of training for a sport, not so much uh, running as a sport.
0: And from there, you just got more and more into running.
4: I did, I did. It's uh, something that uh, once I once I trained for and completed my first marathon, it was uh, I was hooked. It became a you know, a, a, its own beast after that.
0: What does that mean? You were hooked. How frequently were you running?
4: Uh, I probably went from. You know, being a non-runner to ramping up to a marathon training program, which I was running, you know, four or five times a week, finishing the marathon, then after that, quickly looking for the uh, the next race, whether it was a, a turkey trot or a half marathon. So I, I went from basically doing nothing to running a, a marathon and training for a marathon to then not really missing uh, a long Saturday run until recently when I got injured. You know, when when I'm not running like I am right now, I'm um, I'm unfortunately uh, have to take a, f- a four week period off uh, with an injury, and uh, it's a bit stressful not being able to to get out there and run and enjoy a nice spring afternoon or. Uh, go out there in a weekend and, uh, you know, decompress and, and, and get a few miles in.
0: There's an entry in your blog, I Runner Blog, with the headline, Are You Addicted to Running? In this entry, you question whether you're addicted to running, and I guess the answer is yes, or at least somewhat.
4: <laughs> yeah, you know, and that, that, that article and that post had uh, had quite a bit of feedback on it, and I guess I, I struck a chord with uh, other runners out there. You know, I, I I guess if you look at the uh the term addiction, you know, I guess I would be addicted to running, but you know, like uh, like any addiction, you know, the first step is to admit that you do have an issue, the second is to declare that you don't want to do it anymore, and the next is to, you know, implement a way to uh to fix um the addiction and uh you know with running it's 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 all about balance and i think it's i think you know what that article wanted to show was that you know and anything you do in life um you know you need balance you know with today's you know with today with tv with the biggest loser and these shows about losing weight and healthy living you know it seems to be you know everybody's trying to go a million miles an hour and and you know hit a goal and um you know what 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 i guess i'm trying to to put out there with that article is yeah, I guess I am addicted to 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 running, but uh at the end of the day it's it's all about balance and it's all about uh you know having a healthy lifestyle and 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 not getting so addicted where it's affecting what you fell in love with um you know that thing to begin with.
0: Prior to this layoff, you would run through injury, wouldn't you?
4: Yeah, you know and and if you ask uh, a lot of runners, most runners um are not smart enough to, to take a break and to stop, and uh, I'm, I'm in my current situation now because uh, I didn't listen to my body, and I had races on the schedules that I was training for, but, you know, I had. I had run through injury, and it's not something that uh, we in our blog advise runners to do. In fact, we have a... Uh, a running physical therapist who writes about that frequently in the blog about listening to your body taking care of your body and you know if you take care of your body it'll, it'll take care of you as you as you're training and running
0: scott thanks so much for your time
4: all right thank you
0: scott miles is the creator of irunner blog This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're taking a look at different types of addictions, including some that are out of the ordinary. Manhattan resident April Brucker says she's addicted to ventriloquism. April's even appeared on the TLC show, My Strange Addiction. She's with us in the studio this morning, along with some of her puppets. April, good morning.
2: What's up? What's up, George? Thanks for having me.
0: So what is your addiction?
2: My addiction is... uh Ventriloquism As a matter of fact I eat, sleep, and dream Ventriloquism And my children go with me Everywhere I go You
0: mentioned your children Now we're talking about Your puppets
2: Yes, my puppet children
0: Do you take offense When I call them puppets Or dummies?
2: Well I don't take offense But they might Do you want me to ask them real quick?
0: Please do You carry them around In a suitcase Who is this now? Who's come out?
2: My name is Sunny. This is Sunny. Yeah, Sonny, um, how do you feel about being called a puppet? Well, I feel like it demeans me and my worth. I'm standing up for my people, you.
0: How long have you been doing ventriloquism?
2: Sonny, how long have I been doing ventriloquism? Since he's been 13.
0: Since you've been 13? Yes. And when did it become an addiction?
2: Sonny, when did it become an addiction for me? Let's see. Back track, back track. It was a dark and stormy night. Actually, um, it's always been sort of an addiction for me. I've always sort of loved it, uh, you know, from day one, because it sort of brought me out of my shell. I was a really shy kid, a fat kid, and I was watching an Edgar Bergen TV special with my family one night, and we were all trying to talk like ventriloquists, and she was the only one that could do it. And so then the guys started to dig her. I tell you, dig her.
0: So you discovered your talent, and you went with it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I went with it. And and it opened a lot of doors, and I was able to make a career out of my addiction.
0: So you do this for a living now, ventriloquism. Yes, I do. Where do you do it?
2: Uh, where do I do it, Sunny? She does kids' parties. You do kids' parties. She does comedy clubs. She does private events. And, well, she does a lot of gay stuff. Yeah, I do a lot of um gay events, gay functions. Oh, and she also does a lot of sporting events, too. She's pretty popular.
0: How many do you actually have with you there in your suitcase?
2: I have four today.
0: Okay, and how many do you own?
2: I own eight currently, and my family is growing. Who is this? Who are you? My name is Sweetie Pie. How are you, George?
0: I'm doing very well, Sweetie Pie.
2: Sweetie Pie, how old are you? Old.
0: So when you go out every day, April, you're going out with your puppets. If you go into the grocery store, you have your puppets yeah, with you. Yeah, in some
2: capacity, yeah. Sometimes we aren't out in the grocery store. Sometimes we travel in the suitcase.
0: Has this at all interfered with any of your personal relationships?
2: <sighs> Has it? I think I better have May help me with this one. Okay. Because once upon a time I was engaged, the relationship was a really bad one. And, like he was a total loser. May Wilson, ladies and gentlemen, May, May Wilson. So you know what he did? He told acro you can't learn makeup and you gotta stop talking to your friends. That's right, he did. He told me who I couldn't, couldn't talk to. And then he said it's me or the because the ventriloquism is freaky. So basically, I gave up the puppets for six months because I wanted to keep this guy. I wanted to marry him. And the next thing I knew was, you know, like, he was trying to control every aspect of my life. And then he wanted me to stop talking to my family. And that's when I knew the relationship was Outski.
0: So it sounded, though, like there were issues even outside of the puppets with this individual. Yeah,
2: but his friends would make fun of him for seeing me. And his friends were lasers. Lasers, I tell you, lasers. And, um, yeah, so basically they said me or the puppets. And, you know after a few months without the puppets I would I would talk to them when he wasn't around. I decided to dump him. It was time.
0: What was that six months like when you had to limit your time with your puppets?
2: What was it like May? Well, it was a really sad state of affairs. That's right. Um it was a sad state of affairs. I She stopped bathing, stopped wearing makeup, did some drugs that's right I I drank a lot, stopped eating. So you
0: lost some control without your puppets.
2: Yeah, I lost a lot of control. Um, I mean, but it was the hallmark of a really abusive relationship to begin with. Mm -hmm. And the crazy thing is is that when I was on the show, I got letters from a lot of women in similar relationships who unfortunately thought that they deserved this treatment, um, who thought that they deserved it when their boyfriends hit them, punched them, slapped them, spit on them demean them, and if anybody in that situation is listening, you do not deserve that treatment. Maybe I'm on a soapbox right now, but dating violence is real. You
0: mentioned the show. You were on TLC's show called Strange Strange Addictions. And I
2: got a lot of fan mail like this, and it broke my heart. So if me being visible as a puppet addict and being fearless about who I am can help somebody, I hope it helps people like that get out of a relationship like that because you obviously deserve better treatment.
0: With the exception of that six months, because your then fiancé asked you to kick your puppet habit, did you ever try on your own to say, you know what, I'm going to try life without these puppets?
2: Did I, May? No, never, never.
0: Did you ever ask a psychologist why you're so connected, why you're so addicted
2: to these well, puppets? Well, when I was on the show, um, I did see a psychologist and she thought that it was because I had social anxiety disorder and I think it is still because I am very shy like I'm a very quiet person like you know like maybe I'm a professional performer maybe I'm out with the kids maybe I talk to people but my personal friends I call them five finger friends I think I you know I have five friends five friends that I like five friends that I trust because I don't trust very many people
0: why do you think that's the case
2: that's a good question I don't know I just it just is the case. I've always been sort of a loner. I've always been sort of shy. I've always been sort of bookish. I mean, I'm, I'm weird. I like to read about serial killers. She is. She's very weird, I tell you. Very weird, George. Did the
0: psychologist who saw you on the show give you any advice besides trying to psychoanalyze why you are so connected to these puppets?
2: Well, she said, you know, try to find some interests outside of the puppets, which, you know, I have since the show. Um, and, and plus, I've, I've performed without them because I'm an actress as well. I've done hosting gigs without them because some bookers don't like a puppet act. And But I always bring them along just in case. Like, they're always with me. But um, the thing is, is that since the show, I've, you know, i started kickboxing. And the puppets don't come with me. It's just me. But her advice was, you know, that I was teetering on the line between somebody that was about to leave reality versus somebody that was just eccentric and passionate and that I had to be careful. And I respect her opinion because I don't want to be somebody that makes my people look bad. You're acting like ventriloquism's the nation, a nation, April. girl. Stop it.
0: How would you compare this addiction to any other type of addiction?
2: I'd have to say that this is a positive addiction and other types of addictions might be a negative addiction and my puppets have taught me to teach children to love each other and to love themselves but other types of addiction versus drugs alcohol and food you know people lie people steal people cheat to get their fix and they're willing to die or go to jail and I haven't killed anybody yet I don't steal I'm just he's just a harmless nutcase okay
0: a harmless nutcase huh April Brucker, thank you so much for coming in.
2: Thank you. And if you want to find me on Facebook, um, April Brucker, like my name, A-P-R-A-L-B-R-U-C-K-E-R. Ciao. Ciao.
0: Ciao. April Brucker says she's addicted to ventriloquism. She's appeared on the TLC show, My Strange Addiction. Game over. The telltale signs are ominous. Teens hold up in their rooms, ignoring family and friends, while grades plummet. The culprit is not drugs or alcohol but video games. I even came across a group online with big concerns about this, Mothers Against Video Game Addiction and Violence. Cityscapes' Morleen Chin talked with clinical psychologist Dr. Michael Fraser about the growing problem of video game addiction.
2: How do you determine if someone is addicted to video games?
5: Well, I think there are a lot of things we want to look for. For starters, uh, we want to see how playing video games is actually affecting their life. Is it disrupting their ability to function at school or at work? Is it seriously interfering with their relationships? Usually people who come for help to our outpatient clinic with this problem typically come because there's a problem at school or at work or in a relationship, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in a family. I think a lot of other things to look for are how much time is a person spending playing the video game? Do they feel like they have difficulty getting off the game? Do they feel like they themselves would agree that they spend too much time playing are they noticing that they're having an increase in arguments with close others, whether it's their parents or whether it's a significant other? Those kinds of things, I think, would be the things that I would want to look for.
2: How do you differentiate between someone who is addicted to video games and someone who's just obsessed?
5: Well, I think that's a good question. And some of the things that I was just mentioning, we want to see how much time a person's actually spending playing the game. I would hate for anyone to come away from this thinking that by virtue of the fact that they're playing a video game and that they really enjoy it and that they spend a lot of time doing it means that they're addicted. That's absolutely not the case. And Whenever we use the terms addicted, whether it be with a drug or with alcohol or with any uh, behavior, we we have to look for a couple of things. One is a person finding that they need to spend more and more time uh, doing the activity or using the substance. That would be a classic part of the definition of addiction. And secondly, What's their response behaviorally when they're asked to stop? Typically when people are trying to cut back on a drug or alcohol, they notice withdrawal symptoms. And this is something that I've definitely noticed in the office when I'm working with families and and teenagers in particular who are asked to either cut back on the amount of time that they spend playing video games or they're asked to quit altogether. Uh, They show major shifts in mood. They become very angry to the point that they can actually get aggressive uh, when their parents try to unplug the game.
2: Can you tell me about specific cases of people who have been addicted, who are addicted to
3: video games?
5: One of the patterns that I've noticed is that they tend to be very intelligent teenagers, young adults. Uh, It tends to happen somewhere in high school where they are finding that their grades are suddenly starting to decline. And a very frequent pattern that I've noticed is that when the schoolwork gets a little bit more difficult, you've got some intelligent kids who are required to study a little bit more, be a little bit more organized. Maybe it's when they hit 10th grade or 11th grade. And they find that the game provides a form of escape and a kind of a a release of, of tension and stress. And at first, it's a very good, healthy way to relieve their stress. But then they notice that they start to go to the game when they should be studying, that they begin to play the game whenever they start to feel feelings of anxiety or stress starting to take over. Uh, And at that point, uh, they begin to use that as their way of coping. Rather than studying harder, rather than taking on the coursework, they begin to let that go. And then something interesting happens, whereas they used to care about their schoolwork at this point, they start to not care.
2: Can video game addiction be treated?
5: I believe so, and I I think that it needs to be treated in the context of the family. It's an issue that needs to be talked about in the family. I think we need to certainly understand what anxieties there are in the family, but we also need to understand how the parents are parenting their children. How are the limits set in the house? What are the rules in the house? For example, where's the computer? Where's the video game? There may be a lot of families listening to this where... I hope they realize the importance of, of having family meals together, staying engaged with their children, uh, but most of all, being vigilant uh, about where the technologies are.
2: Michael Fraser, thank you so
5: much. Oh, you're very welcome, Glenn, to help.
0: That was Cityscapes' Morleen Chin talking with Michael Fraser, a clinical psychologist here in New York City. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget to check out our archives at wfuv.org cityscape. Find us on Facebook where you can check out our photos, post your thoughts, and get the latest Cityscape updates. You can also follow us on Twitter to stay in the Cityscape loop. We're listed on both Facebook and Twitter as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Polarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCreary and producer Morleen Chin. Have a great weekend.